Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. We are in a uh, discipleship series, and we're spending time, what what we mean by that is that we're spending time speaking about discipleship. And the reason why is that when you become a Christian, when you say, Jesus, I need your blood, I trust you for salvation, I've tried on my own, I've tried to live life, and I've found myself not living. When you get to that place, how many of you guys understand that you are not simply called then to mentally assent to the ideas of Christianity? Christianity is not a list of ideas that you just simply believe. You, you believe these ideas that makes you a Christian. No, you are called, you are, dare I say, even designed to become a little Christ here on earth. That's the vision of your life. You are designed to be like a little Christ so that when people see you, they go, you know what they remind me of? You know, I read this book, Matthew, one time. They remind me of the, who Matthew was writing about. You're designed to be a person who partners with the will of God for his glory. So, That's why we're in this series. Uh, Here's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in 2 Timothy. So turning your Bibles to 2 Timothy, that's in the New Testament. And uh, once you're at 2 Timothy chapter 2, go ahead and stand up with me for the reading of the scriptures. Paul is writing uh, this letter to Timothy. He's a young pastor and Paul is mentoring him. And he says this, he says, you then, my son, in in chapter two, verse one, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Verse three, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. This is the word of the Lord. You can go ahead and grab a seat. You know, last week we talked about um, how discipleship is the relational invitation to make your identity visible. What is discipleship? If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. What is discipleship? Discipleship is the relational invitation to make your identity visible. And I want to reiterate that God is not in the business of behavior modification. When we talk about discipleship, sometimes we're like, yeah, we were justified, we were saved, the blood of Christ covers me, and so then all of my life is trying to make my behavior look like it, you know, that's the reality. That is not, that's not what discipleship is. God is in the business of giving you an identity that comes with power. It's almost like this identity that he gives you is a seed, and it's going to bear fruit in your life when it's grabbed and when it's owned and when it's applied and when it's treasured. So so here's the truth. The fruit of your life, whatever it is, good or bad, 
will reveal what you believe. What you've grabbed, what you've owned, and what you've treasured. What you believe will always leak out. It'll always leak out. And so Jesus said this, you know, Jesus knowing this, he said, you're going to know a tree by its fruit. So, so go there with me. I reveal, or you reveal, what we have planted in our thought life and what our dreams and our will and our emotions are, where we've planted those things by the fruit of my life, by what comes out. If you want to know what has Alex been soaking in, look at my life. Look at my behavior. Look at my language. I'm in uh, counseling right now with this counselor who is insane. She's just a wild person. And every week I'm like, Whenever I talk to you, I find how much of a gap there is between who Christ has called me to be and your life and the way that you're living and where I'm at right now. There is a big, big gap. Because the fruit of my life is going to reveal what I've been soaking in and where I've planted myself and what my mind, will, my emotions, my dreams are. You know, there's three images in every person's life. There's the, you know, there's the mental image of who you see yourself to be or who you want to be, who you imagine yourself to be. That's the first image. The second image in your life is your projected image. So your projected image is, this is how I want to show up in the world. And so I'm going to wear this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to drive this. I'm going to say this. I'm going to have this job so that I can appear a specific way to the people around me. When I come to church, I'm going to say these things. I'm going to smile at these jokes that aren't funny. And, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to project myself because I want to be perceived a specific way. But then, how many of you guys understand there's a third image? And that third image is your real image. It's how you really are showing up. It's what everybody else sees that maybe you don't see. And remember, you know, the scriptures tell us that we're made in God's image. So God is very interested in making you the real deal. He doesn't just want to touch how you think about yourself or how you imagine your image. He doesn't just want to certainly just affect how you, the image that you're curating for other people. No, he wants to affect the way that you really show up. He wants to make you the real deal. All the way down, he wants to give you integrity so that if somebody were to crack your life open, they wouldn't be surprised at what they see. They go, that makes sense. Everything that I've seen in their life, that's, that is totally what they've been soaking in. That, there's, there's congruence between those two things. So, so remember, you know, last week we, we kind of decided this or we came to this conclusion that your behavior in life reveals what you fear. You fear God that's going to show up in your behavior. You don't fear God. You fear other people or you fear whatever else it is, and that's going to show up in your behavior. And your fears reveal what you believe because attached to every single fear is a lie. There's a lie that is attached to, you know, not like, should I put my finger in a, in a, in a light socket? I'm scared to put my finger in a, in a light socket. No, there's like, a, that's legit. No, I'm talking about like emotional, spiritual fears uh, that God has directly said, this is, this is, this is the way that, that, you know, I'm gonna bless you or this is what I'm gonna do in your life. And then you have all these other fears that contradict with that. Every fear that you have is attached to this thing that you're believing. And here's the golden truth of discipleship with Christ. When I believe the truth, I get set free. So when I believe the truth, what you know, Jesus said, he said, if you believe me, you're going to get set free. Or another way to put it is, if you believe me, you are going to realize in your life the imago day here on earth. 
I didn't make you to have a projected image. I didn't make you to, you know, try to appear some way to other people. I made you to be the real deal. And it's through believing me and trusting me that you're going to get free to be that person, to be the real deal, to really show up as the Imago Dei here on earth. Now, what I'm saying is this, the Christian's level of freedom is the litmus test for how discipleship is going. So you're like, how, how, am I a good disciple? How am I doing? Well, how free are you? How free are you? See, what, what, what all this is coming together to mean is this, is if I'm not free, then I have not believed the truth. And some of us, like what I was saying earlier, <laughs> like, what is up with Alex? He's so intense. Yeah, I'm intense this Sunday. Um, like what I'm saying is that if you are not free, you look at your life and you're not free, then you are in some part of your life, you have given some of yourself to Jesus, but not all. You have believed God for some things, but you have not believed him in all the promises and all the truth that he has offered. Now, what do I mean by freedom? Because maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, you know, this church is always talking about freedom, freedom this, we sing songs about freedom. What do you mean by freedom? What I mean is the ability to be like Christ in action because you've been released from all your old reactions. What is freedom? It's the ability to be like Christ in your actions because you got released from all of your old reactions. See, you lived a life before Christ where you constantly pinged and ponged between all of your fears. You're rushing to this, uh, I'm afraid of this, and so I better do this. Oh, but wait, that kind of makes it uncomfortable over here, so maybe I should go over here and do this. And you are constantly pinging and ponging between all the, the thousands of fears that you have in your life. But when you come into Christ, and you really understand not only his affection, his grace, and love for you, but you understand the position, the identity that you have, that you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. When you get that, then you are set free from your old reactions. So you don't have to wear those clothes in order to feel valuable because you are daily sensing the value of the love of God in your life. You don't have to say that or this or whatever it is in order to be a part of the club with those people conforming to whatever is in vogue. You already belong in heaven. So you, you can actually speak the truth. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're afraid, you can't speak the truth. You can only say what you think people want you to say. You, you, you don't have to exhaust yourself working because money is no longer the way that you get and use power. Then you're really free. And here's the good news, guys. Here's the good news. If your behavior is a summary of your fears and your fears reveal the lies that you've believed, then you are on the verge of freedom simply by identifying what you're afraid of and believing the truth. You are on the verge of becoming the real deal, the Imago Dei showing up here on earth by increasingly planting your beliefs in Christ. And what I'm saying is this, this process, when we do that over and over and over again, this process develops unafraid sons and daughters who are able to rule in love alongside Christ for the renewal of the world. We, 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 we came up with this phrase this last week, uh, or last uh, Sunday, that this is really what I believe God is aiming for with our church. This is like, what is Saints Hill aiming towards? This is our aim right now. It's to become unafraid sons and daughters who are able to rule in love alongside Christ for the renewal of the world. That's my summary. 
Now, I want to address this phrase today, specifically this able to rule part, because I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. Maybe even right now you're like, able to rule? What does that even mean? Well, let's do a little bit of a flyover scripturally. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, the, the, the story of creation, we learn that God is ordering chaos from the very beginning, you know, the, the Hebrew in the, in the first chapter of Genesis is all of this cutting and splicing and moving and shoving. And it's this land where I'm cutting you away from water and, and sky. I'm cutting you away from land. It's this construction language. And what a lot of Hebrew scholars think is that what God is doing is he's taking chaotic matter and he's giving it purpose. Land, you're going to be dry. Water, you're going to be wet. Sky, you're going to be like this. You're going to be full of oxygen. Birds, you're going to do this. Fish, you're going to do this. He's constantly giving purpose to what he has made. Now, he does something very, very unique. In fact, all of the other ancient creation myths, uh, they, they treat humans as slaves, but God does something very, very different. He creates a partner or a representative to be his royal demonstration on earth. What, what, uh, you don't believe me. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, that's the imago Dei, according to our likeness, so that they may, that was so weak, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. The very first thing that is said about the, the vision for humans is that you were designed to rule. You were designed to reign, to have authority. You know, uh, I have a two and almost a, almost a three-year-old. Do you know what her favorite words are? No. And mine. That's mine. I hear that constantly. It's like, that is totally not yours. I bought that. Um, what is she doing? What is she doing? Is that bad behavior? No, no, no. What that is, is that she is living into this. She was designed to have authority. She was designed to rule. She was designed to reign. She needs a parent. She needs a father and a mother to help her shape that so that she can do it correctly <laughs> and not, you know, knock Frankie over when they're playing with their toys or whatever. She needs help understanding how to rule and reign. And that's what, that's what it is to be human. But from the very beginning, you were designed to rule. The vision statement over every human is to be the royal representation of God here on earth, to reign over animals, to reign over family, over land, over industry. So just to be clear, Maybe you didn't catch it. What is the relationship that humans are supposed to have with animals? Ruling. Now, if you know the story, uh, you know, it goes Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and then you get to Genesis chapter 3, and humans have an encounter with an animal. They have an encounter with a snake. And instead of ruling that snake, what happens? The snake rules them. I mean, it's, it's amazing. We were told that humans are going to rule animals. And next thing you know, they're getting ruled by an animal. The beast gets control. And the ramifications then ripple throughout the story. See, the result of listening to the snake is becoming an animal yourself. Look at this. Before Cain kills his brother Abel, here's what God says to him. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It's animal language. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must what? Rule over it. 
sin is crouching. It's this animal that wants to rule over you, just like the serpent wanted to rule over humans. So how is sin personified by God? It's personified as this crouching animal, and it wants to do the same thing that the serpent. Now, watch what happens. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. What does Cain do? He doesn't listen to God. Sin crouches, rules over him, and he becomes a snake attacking someone in the field like snakes do. He becomes an animal. Now, just a few chapters later in the story, there's this man named Lamech. How many of you guys know Lamech? Anybody? <laughs> He's a bad guy. He brags at this, at one point, he's, he's sitting with his wives. It's the first time we ever see polygamy within the Old Testament. It's, it's a description, not a prescription. He's, he's in front of his wives, and he's bragging about, uh, about what he's done. He said, you know, there's this man who he hit me, and I killed him for hitting me. So not an eye for an eye, but even worse. And you know what he says? He says, you know, if Cain was forgiven, then certainly I will be as well. In other words, he became an animal like Cain, and he began to define good and evil for himself. And fascinatingly enough, this is fascinating, his name in Hebrew is an inversion of the letters for the word king in Hebrew. So who is he? He's the inverted ruler. He's the upside-down king. He is the example. He becomes the example of the authority and power God gave humans used exactly wrongly. He's ruling incorrectly. He's the backwards ruler. So here's a little bit of a recap. Look, what we learned from Genesis is that who you listen to matters because you're going to become the sum total of your beliefs. And if you're listening to a, to a serpent, to a snake, then you are going to rule incorrectly. Who you trust will determine whether you live as the royal image of God on earth or not, or whether you use your image to project strength that you don't really have and to control the people around you. See, humans have just that much authority. It, it is just fascinating. Throughout the scriptures, they have, we see they have just that much authority given to them by God. And you know, I see this almost in every pastoral counseling meeting that I have. Every human has the ability to make the world a living hell or heaven for the people around them because of what they've believed. It all is about what you believe. If you believe lies, then you will be afraid. If you are afraid, then you will trample people, you will take from people, and you will live like an animal. Ruling incorrectly. You know, I think this is so common. I think this is what most of our, you know, all of us, we nod along like, yeah, I've experienced that. It's so common that many of us in this room probably don't even like the idea of authority or humans ruling. It just feels like, isn't that a little bit too risky? But here's the story of the Bible, and really, this is the gospel. There was another human who came who did what Adam and Eve couldn't do, and he ruled the snake. He was able to rule correctly. And I want to say this this morning. This is going to maybe be a little interesting. I want to say that he ruled correctly through discipleship. Do you remember what Jesus prayed when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember that prayer he said, you know, he's looking at the cross. He's looking at this horrible death, at this complete rejection from humans and complete rejection from, from even God turning his face away. And you know what he says? He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to do this. And I have the kind of relationship with you 
that I can tell you honestly where I'm at. I don't want this. And then he prays this. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. What is he saying? What he's saying is that I don't want to go to the cross. <laughs> I don't want this fate, but I will trust you, God. Now, now this is kind of interesting. <laughs> Jesus trusted God. Hmm, really? I thought he was God. Well, look at this. Look, when Peter is giving uh, his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, you remember Pentecost happens, all these people become believers, and Peter gives this first sermon. This caught my attention recently. Here's what he says. He's giving this, this is in the middle of a sermon, so it starts with but. But, okay, so, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Here's the part that I want you to pay attention to. But God raised Jesus from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God. So it doesn't say Jesus raised Jesus from the dead, does it? That's not what it says. It says that God raised Jesus from the dead. What does that mean? Aside from the Trinitarian hurdle that this is, this is fascinating to me because Jesus didn't raise himself. God raised him. I don't know what all of that means, but what I do know is that Jesus was fully man with the full experience of emotions that that would entail, and Jesus had to trust God that if he went through with this plan, if he died, that he would actually get raised. So he's in the garden. And what, and what is he saying? I don't know about this. I actually have to trust you. So not my will be done, your, your will be done. What I'm saying is this. Jesus was the first disciple. <laughs> Jesus was the first disciple, and he's showing us the core of discipleship. Here's the core of discipleship. He's not concerned with the resurrection. He's concerned with the death. If you are a disciple, if you are on the path of discipleship with God, then your focus is not the resurrecting. Your focus is the dying. That's trusting God. See, the core of discipleship is this. It's, I am so afraid of this thing. I don't think I'm gonna make it through this. If I give this up to you, if I stop this fear, if I give this pursuit over to you, if I lose control, it could kill me and I may never make it out. <laughs> but I'm gonna trust you. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. I'm gonna trust that if I die, you'll actually raise me. Our job is the dying. His job is the raising. That's discipleship. Okay, look down at the passage that we have in front of us in 2 Timothy one more time. I want to read it again. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Everybody say civilian affairs. But rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. I love Paul's invitation into discipleship. You know, I, don't, I, I, I typically don't start church services this way. Hey, everybody, welcome to Saints Hill. Would you join with me in suffering for Christ? It's like, dang, that's like a church shrinking strategy. 
But Paul says to Timothy, he says, join, here's this invitation in discipleship. Hey, join me in suffering. Maybe it could even be said, hey, join me in dying. And in order to describe what he means by that, he gives us three metaphors. Here's the three metaphors of the disciple's life. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Let's look at each of these. You know, what is it about soldiers that he is tying into the disciple's life? He's saying this. Soldiers are people whose life has a mission that's bigger than their personal mission. See, sometimes, this is me, I come into this space, I come into church, and I'm like, you can have it all. And then on Monday, I'm like, yeah, I don't really want to listen to you about where I should put my money. So did he get it all? No, he didn't get it all. Soldier doesn't live that way. A soldier does not love their life so much that they're unwilling to sacrifice themselves for the mission. So, so what is their suffering in the language of Paul? What is the suffering that a soldier is invited into? It's to say no to project self because of the big yes that you have given to the mission of God. You're like, I won't build anything in my life apart from you. It is all about you. That's what a soldier says. Their schedule, think about it. Their schedule, their workouts, their food are all regimented in pursuit of this laser-focused aim. I'm on a mission. There's something bigger in my life. You know, many people, they become Christians. They get saved because they see that Christ has a bigger mission on offer than their own personal thing that they're building. And yet, many of us as disciples, we see that big mission we see that big uh, vision, and over time, we slowly allow other vision, other mission back into our life that isn't that. And so Paul is like, you're not a civilian. You're not a civilian. You know, for the first, Jake, you remember this, for the first couple of years of the church, um, there was a lot of just, you know, just how is this going, and, and are we doing the right things, and did we focus on the right things? And I remember we would just say to each other, we'd just be like, you're not a civilian. We're not civilians. In other words, we don't, as Christians, you do not get the luxury of living like everybody else around you. If you look like everybody else around you, then you have forsaken your identity as a soldier with a mission, able to rule the Imago Dei representation here on earth for something lesser. And so Paul says, join me in suffering. In other words, schedule your life. Schedule everything that you do in your life. Center it around the presence of God. Center it around his voice in your life because you're not a civilian. Everybody just say that. I'm not a civilian. I'm not a civilian. Secondly, he uses this example of an athlete. And the athlete is, is similar uh, to uh, the soldier in that an athlete tailors their body and their mind to the parameters of the game that they play. They, they, everything is about this, all, you know, it's all about the parameters of the game that they're going to engage in. The race is this long. You know, uh, you have to dribble the ball. You can't pick it up and run with it. Everything is tailored to whatever sport they're playing, right? So what could Paul be getting at here? Well, the Christian life is like a race. And here, here's the point. Not everyone who is running the Christian life is running it well. Because he says in here, he says that the athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. In other words, they don't receive the victor's crown unless they have tailored their whole life around that singular pursuit. This is about the fear of the Lord, guys. I have such a holy fear, a holy awe and reverence that I don't live my own life. I tailor my whole life so that I run well in your eyes, God. How much are we thinking about that? <laughs> 
Lastly, he picks a farmer as an example. And the farmer is a little bit different because the farmer is an investor. It's somebody who goes without in the present or works hard or suffers in the present so that tomorrow there will be a harvest. It's kind of different. It's this idea that I'm going to say no to things today because I want that harvest that's coming in the future. In other words, while everybody else is sleeping or going to parties or doing whatever else they're doing, I'm in the field and I'm sowing things so that I can reap a harvest someday. Now, these three examples aren't too dissimilar, and there's so much here. We could have spent a bunch more time on these, but for today, all of these metaphors for the Christian life have something in common. I say no to things that other people say yes to so that I can give a yes to God. I say no to some things that other people around me say yes to so that my yes can belong to God. The vision that God has for the earth has become mine, so I don't have a personal project that I'm building outside of his project. My time, my energy, my thought life, my practices are all aimed like a soldier, like a farmer, like an athlete, at your will, so that I can say, not my will, but your will be done, because I'm not a civilian. Can you say it? You know, when I was a sophomore in high school, I'll end with this story. When I was a sophomore in high school, there was this senior. You know, it was so funny. I hadn't thought about this guy for years until today, this morning. When I was a sophomore in high school, there was this senior um, who was very cool. He was a really cool guy. Uh, he had... He was a, a shoe collector, so he had all of these really rare Jordans. Any, like, shoe collector Jordan heads in the room? I, I doubt Newburgh has. They maybe have one. They have one person who's, like, a shoe collector. Um, he had all of these rare shoes that were worth thousands, and everybody knew. I mean, the guy, I think he even had a grill. If you're, like, a millennial, you'll know what that is. Gen Z, I don't know if you know that. But he had, like, a, a custom, like, di fake diamond grill that he would wear to school. So he was, like, living in the early aughts really, really well. And uh, I remember one year, he comes back for his senior year from summertime. And uh, he has, he's like wearing these ugly shoes. He's not wearing Jordans. He's wearing these ugly shoes. And I remember these, I, I overheard this conversation with him. These people are like, hey, what, what are those, man? Those look silly. And he's like, oh, I sold all my shoes. And they're like, why'd you, why would you do that? You're like, how much money did you make? Did you make a lot of money? Like, what are you saving up for something? And he's like, no, I gave the money away. And they're like, why'd you do that? I'll never forget what he said. He said, I met Jesus this summer. And he said, I sold everything. I sold all of my treasure so that I could make him my treasure. And I'm like, oh, he's not a civilian anymore. See, God is making him the real deal and he's getting free. And so he's gonna rule well. When you submit to God like a soldier to an officer or like an athlete to a game or a farmer to a field, then you will be able to rule alongside God in love. That's the vision for your life. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website. 